Hi, I'm Nadia Cavell. I'm Ben Riva Hinks. And I'm Zachary Fall. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. In this episode, we talk to Penny Babakani, an Iranian German theatre producer working in the UK. Since graduating from Mount Views MA in creative producing, Penny has worked for international production company Celador and produced the widely praised show Jewel at the Vault Festival in London. We talked about culture shock, growing up in international schools, and what diverse and sustainable theatre practice might look like. Hi, Penny. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, folks. Lovely to be here with you. It's great to have you on Migratives. I know you and I met actually in a slightly roundabout way, which maybe we'll get to at some point. But I wanted to start off by asking, how is it going? It's going, you know what, it is going pretty swell, um, all things considered. Um, I always have to try and kind of find the balance between acknowledging everything that is going around outside of like my own personal sphere and weighing that up against how my life has changed over the past few months. And despite everything that has been going on, it's been a really great time for me personally. I have been living in London for quite a few years, but the past few weeks that I've been back, um, really feels like the first time I'm starting to get to know my neighborhood, Mm -hmm. really starting to get a sense of like where I live, what's around, who's around. And so it's been amazing. So I I know that you grew up largely in Germany, but that your family are originally from Iran um, and that you've spent time there. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and your early life? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, uh, my family is from Iran. I was born there. And I spent the first eight years of my life uh, living there in Tehran specifically before my family migrated for the first time to Dubai in the UAE. And I had four really brilliant, blissfully unaware kind of adolescent preteen years in Dubai before my whole family relocated for the second time to Germany, to a kind of a lovely, sleepy, large village, small town would be my assessment. But <laughs> my, my, my dad likes to say it's the capital of the world where we live right now. <laughs> and I lived there, graduated high school there, and then moved to the UK in 2013 to do my master's at Durham, and then moved down to London in 2016. Sorry, to do my BA at Durham and then moved down to London in 2016 to do my master's. So, yeah, it's it's really fascinating because, you know, I did spend a considerable chunk of time in each of the kind of three countries that I grew up in. But within each of those places, there was always many, many moves. I think it's something to do with my parents. My parents, when they were quite young, they... um. They moved to the big city. They left the small town, moved to the big city. And so I think moving around has always been in their blood. We have never been able to live in a house for longer than two years. Mm. We just don't seem to have the patience for it. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have I have the stats somewhere of like, you know, two continents, four countries, however many cities, et cetera, and some 20-something houses that I've lived in over the past 20-something years. Wow. 
I mean, obviously, those are quite uh, foundational ages to be moving, you know, talking about eight years old, 12 years old, where your idea of the world is forming. What was it like, for instance, just moving to Germany as a 12 year old without experience of that culture? Um, well, it's interesting you say without experience of that culture, because I have this weird fluke in my personal history where I actually learned how to speak German from watching German kids TV when I was six years old. So still living in Iran, I randomly happened upon German TV channels that were being beamed um, via satellite. Hmm. And I spent three to six kind of quite obsessive months just glued in front of the TV every day after school. And before I knew it, I'd completely absorbed the language. Um, my parents kind of believed me, but kind of also didn't. But <laughs> the whole time that we lived in Dubai, actually, my dad was traveling back and forth to Germany. Um, and so he would always bring back magazines, toys, kind of tokens with us. So in a way, it was it was actually, when we arrived, it wasn't that much of a culture shock for starters because we'd been so immersed in the culture the whole time. Mm. Uh, but also I've been really, you know, incredibly lucky and fortunate in that ever since we emigrated from Iran, uh, my brother and I, I have a younger brother, we've always attended international schools. And those are, that's like a very specific bubble of its own. Mm. And so that I think more than anything has really had really helped me um, as a kid kind of find my feet and not experience the wild kind of clash of cultures that I did, for example, when I left Germany to move to the UK. I think that honestly might have been the first time in my life when I moved to this country that I experienced culture shock, despite being, you know, a kind of a seasoned immigrant. Mm, wow. How would you um, describe the international bubble? Because uh, I, I grew up in one as well, and I, I kind of recognize your accent as uh, different from mine, but sort of in the same ballpark. Yeah, it's, you know, I've come to refer to the accent as American adjacent. Nice. Yeah. When I was at yeah, American adjacent. Um, when I was at Durham, everybody was always incredibly polite and asked whether I was Canadian. Oh my goodness. Story of my life. Yeah. Which is yeah, just so just a whole nother thing. Which is especially funny because I had, you know, I had lots of Canadian friends in high school and so I knew exactly what they sounded like. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you, mate, but this is not it. <laughs> but yeah, the bubble, you know, looking back on it, I am so incredibly grateful for having that experience because being an immigrant, it already shapes you and it changes you in so many ways. But then being an immigrant surrounded by that open and deliberate atmosphere of acceptance that you get in those expat um, international communities, it's a whole nother ball game. Like, especially in Germany, when I went to school there, monolingual kids were the weird ones yeah <laughs> you know we, we we always tended to get the odd like american diplomats kid um who would come to our school bless them like plucked straight out of the minnesota snow and just <laughs> dropped in the middle of germany and they they were they were the odd ones out they were mm. the odd ones out who hadn't spent their entire lives kind of traveling and living in different countries knowing different languages being able to assimilate to new cultural experiences seamlessly. They were the strange ones. And I just loved, I loved it absolutely as a kid. 
now that I look back on it, I really do kind of recognize it for the immense privilege that that was and how there's only a certain class of immigrant for whom that experience is accessible, Yeah, which you didn't really see, which you didn't recognize as a kid. Those schools that I went to, they were fee-paying schools. They were not cheap. Yeah, Most of them, the fees were paid for by the companies who were making the families relocate. So, you know, that's kind of even the score a little bit. Mm -hmm. But there were plenty of families in my town, in that area of Germany that I grew up in, who were also immigrants who would have benefited massively from what I had, but who simply couldn't afford it. And so at the time, it was... It was so incredibly stabilizing. It was, it really gave me an incredible amount of confidence. It normalized all the kind of things about me that I think I would have felt incredibly uncomfortable about had I just randomly showed up one day and then plopped into a German public school. Mm. But yeah, to walk around on random days of the school year, encouraged to wear the national dress of your home country to have school lunches where everybody was encouraged to bring dishes from their home in. We had this incredible event called World Fest at my school where any any country, any family that wanted to represent their country could get a booth and they could sell food or activities or whatever to do with their culture to raise money for charity. And mm. so many, so many migrants don't get that. They don't get even a semblance of that experience. Yeah, like a celebration of the diversity of it all. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And the great thing about that was it just came so naturally and effortlessly. Yeah. And in the, the way that, you know, the British theater industry has to make such a song and dance about how diverse they are and everything. That just like, you mm. didn't even have to blink an eye. That was just who we are. That's just who we were. Yeah, I've never thought about it like that because it just brings to mind now that when I, when I was in Manila in the international school back in the early 90s, you know, like our slogan was, um, we are one. And we used to have these parades of all the different nationalities in our school and everybody wore their the traditional kind of What's the word? Garbs, garments. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Like the, the traditional dress. dress. Yeah. And it was just such a celebration of all that diversity. And yeah. you're right. I guess I took it for granted. Yeah. I it was our did. normal. It was-, it was our normal. And I think looking back now, um, if anything, recognizing how precious it was to have that normalized for me has really emboldened me to want to normalize that for everybody else. Mm. It's like I walk into meetings and I almost have a different bar for what diversity, inclusion and equity looks like because I have lived it to some extent. Mm-hmm. And so I, I immediately see kind of so many shortcomings. Mm. It sounds like you had access to really rich and varied cultural experiences growing up. I wondered what first exposure you had to theatre and what impression that left you with two different versions of this. The first time I remember kind of going into a theater space as an audience member, I will have been under eight years old. I think my aunt took me as a fun little cultural thing because she was quite, you know, cosmopolitan and cultured and she did all kinds of fun things that my two like working parents never got around to. Uh, she took me and I fell asleep. So <laughs> I don't even remember what the show was, but I do distinctly remember being driven to this lovely fancy venue in Tehran. 
and falling asleep. But as a participant, I have been, and I, it's, it still blows my mind, I have always attended schools, even going back as early as kindergarten, where theater was normal. It was completely normal to, you know, be a part of your local school shows. So I think, if I remember correctly, as soon as I was basically allowed into a school setting, they did what I tend to describe as like the Iranian version of the nativity play. Uh, so they would do a big, a big kind of cultural ceremony around Iranian New Year, uh, Nowruz in March. And I would have been the narrator of the show. I always, I loved, I loved telling stories. I was a massive talker in case you can't tell. <laughs> and so I would have been narrating the Iranian uh, New Year show that my kindergarten would have put on. And even from then on, I never stopped. There has never been a year as part of my formal education where I wasn't doing some kind of theater thing. And as I got older, that became more deliberate. I made a deliberate choice to take drama classes, did IB at drama, did drama as part of my international baccalaureate, all of that. But from the very beginning, theater was kind of compulsory in my education. And I think that more than anything did it for me because like going to the theater to watch a play, a musical, isn't really commonplace in the Middle East. Music, absolutely. Like music is a massive cultural gathering point for people. Concerts, um, not like kind of mosh pit concerts and arenas or anything, but classical music, um, traditional music performances are incredibly commonplace. Mm -hmm. My parents were both extremely well-read. Literature was a huge part of our upbringings. But in terms of actually going to the theater... That wasn't really something I did until I moved to Germany and our school would take us on trips to the theater. But before that, it was like extracurricular drama things. It was school ceremonies. It was little bits and pieces dotted here and there that encouraged me to actually pursue theater. That's really interesting. I went to a school that was not an international school, but it had a very strong uh, multi-faith ethos. And I, I kind of feel like I had a similar experience in that I... I, I don't remember when I first went to a proper theatre, inverted commas, but theatre was always embedded at the heart of kind of ritual and storytelling. And there were these festivals throughout the year of sort of all faiths and none that we would celebrate that always had theatre at the heart of them. And I just, I wonder if that's, you know, certainly for children, such a powerful way to involve them in that process of storytelling where actually the sort of formalities of the Western theatre tradition can be a bit alienating. Yeah, I think absolutely for sure. And kind of keeping in mind that I attended international schools from the age of eight. And I think they definitely saw that. They definitely saw that as a way of kind of bringing everybody together and gathering everyone around one story to tell, to try and kind of tell despite language barriers, um, et cetera. It was always, but I think that's, that's what comes from these, uh, you know, multi-faith, multicultural um, environments is that there's two super easy ways to kind of share your culture 
it's through art and it's through food mm-hmm. and so they always made sure that that was accessible and available and encouraged to everybody mm-hmm. and did you have a sense growing up that this was a career path that you could follow i i looking back on it now i i you know when my parents kind of jokingly lament um, how I ended up where I am now. And I, and I asked them, I'm like, you remember seeing me in all those school plays. How on earth did you ever anticipate I would end up doing anything different? It just seems so obvious. It's like looking back, it's like how could we all not tell that there was never going to be a plan B? But in terms of actually pursuing theater as a career path, actively pursuing it, no. It it never really felt like an option. I was, I kind of feel like I was blagging it until I got here. So for example, uh, one of the main reasons why I've ended up pursuing a career in, um, in the arts, in theater specifically, was because of the amazing extracurricular offering that they had at my university, at Durham University, where Ben and I both went to school. And mm-hmm. um, I didn't know anything about the theater scene at Durham when I applied. Mm until I even got there. Um, I just knew that I liked the look of the school. I was going to study English literature. I convinced my parents <laughs> that in the UK, it's completely acceptable to go to a top university and get a really like classic kind of degree, like an English or a history, and to use that as a jumping off point to go and do some serious career thing, whatever that would be. <laughs> but I, I literally, when I went to university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, mm. The fact that I ended up at Durham with everything that it had to offer from a theater perspective almost felt like a happy accident. Um, and even then after Durham, going to get my uh, MA in producing and really actively um, pursuing producing as a career, that was kind of a fluke as well. I needed an excuse to stay in the UK. Otherwise, my parents would have forced me to move home. Um, and I was like, oh, no, no, oh, no, I'm going to London. I'm doing a master's. It's a thing. It's happening. Now. <laughs> um, but no, my dad, my dad still every once in a while uh, in the middle of a heated family argument over something silly. When I come up with a really good zinger, he will look at me and he'll be like, you should have been a lawyer. <laughs> and that, you know, they've never they've never lost sense of that. Um, they're, they've, they've always been incredibly supportive. But they also have a lot of baggage from back home in Iran where um, the mm. arts humanities are not seen as respectable career paths. Right. Because you were saying earlier how, how literature was very valued in your family um, growing up. So I thought that's quite interesting how despite their value being placed on it, but still not enough for it to be a respectable yeah. career path. Yeah. It's, you know, it's um, literature being cultured, being culturally knowledgeable. They are incredibly valuable socially, uh, right. but professionally, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you, you want, basically, it's infinitely more impressive to uh, be a doctor or an engineer um, who also happens to love poetry than it is to be an actual poet. Mm. Yes. So there, there's, there, there's, there's always been that sense. And it, it helps that I'm a producer and producing is slightly more managerial and I can explain it to them in terms that they understand better. But yeah, I mean, 
growing up in Iran, it was always incredibly clear. It was like, if you're smart, if you're capable, quote unquote, if you are intelligent, you pursue a, a subject at university, a career that involves maths, that involves the sciences, that involves engineering, mm. medicine, etc. Going to study the humanities, it's kind of... Um, it's only if you didn't have the grades, if you weren't cut out to go to a proper university, if you didn't have what it took to really do the rigorous academic training. And mm. I had to do a lot of pushing back and fighting back against that growing up. Mm. And you said that both your parents worked. What did, what did they do or what do they still do? Uh, so my parents, uh, not to be, you know, you're not to be too t- stereotypically Middle Eastern, um, but they both <laughs> work um with the uh, with the oil and gas industry, uh, mm-hmm. which um, has definitely kind of informed a lot of my later choices around kind of sustainability and environmental activism, um, which mm. is just hilarious. But yeah, my, both my parents they kind of they trained um, as engineers and they went to work with the oil and gas industry. But you know, name any classic of like. French Russian literature. My dad's read it. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. And so this is what I mean is that it was it was it's a completely different mindset to them of like yes, you can be brilliant and creative and you can know your Chekhovs and your Dostoevskys and all of that, but you still you go and become a doctor. You go and become an engineer. You don't actually pursue that professionally. Yeah. So you ended up at Durham in the UK to study English literature and you sort of stumbled into theatre. And I'm interested because I had an almost identical experience in that I uh, went to Durham to do English literature and had no intention or expectation of getting involved in theatre at all. And through some happy accident, ended up turning that into my career thanks to Durham. How did that go for you? What was your route into theatre there? So, like I said, my schools had always offered theater as extracurricular activities, theater as a subject that you could study. Um, And towards the end of high school, um, I was starting to really become conscious of the fact that I didn't particularly enjoy being on stage um, as much as I enjoyed all the stuff that happened around putting a production on. And so back then, I had already had a sense of like, Ooh, maybe I want to do more of this. And when I went to Durham, I hadn't really like entertained the idea of performing per se, but I was immediately made aware of the fact that I sounded different to everybody. I had an accent that apparently, this was like news to me, stood out like a sore thumb, mm-hmm. a concept I'd never considered before. Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. immediately ruled out doing any kind of performing for me. And so I thought, okay. What's like the next thing that I could be doing? Oh, I could I could be involved in maybe some like technical stuff. I could become a stage manager. And so I did almost exclusively technical roles in my first year until the very, very end when I produced a play like the week after exams, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and from then on, I definitely, I caught the producing bug for sure. So you i'm sure did a a lot of shows during your time at durham so many ben you have no idea (laughs) (laughs) do you have a number um over 30 wow wow yeah 
I honest to God, I think I spent about, don't tell this to any of my lecturers, I think I spent 30% of my three years at Durham in class. The remaining mm-hmm. 70% was spent in a theater. <laughs> I mean, but it serves you well because, because that's what you're doing now. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely understandable. You went to Mount View to do their MA in creative producing. Yep. What drew you to that course in particular? So um, I alluded to this earlier. Part of it was practicals. Uh, Having had my like head down in producing 30 odd shows in the middle of also trying to scramble together some semblance of a dissertation to hand in in my final year, I completely missed the boat on, you know, your standard Durham careers offerings. I didn't even know there were recruiters and consultants and whatnot from all these big companies coming to speak and grab like brilliant young Durham talent. Mm. I I had no idea any of that had happened. I missed it. I missed it completely. (laughs) And so it came time to actually go, and what on earth am I doing next year? I realized I didn't have a lot of options. And so I kind of did a little bit of scrambling and I was like, okay, okay. I think I like producing. I think this is my thing. I think I want to keep doing it. How do I do that? Um, I'm an immigrant. I have no connections to anywhere in this country. You know, I didn't have like a local regional theater that I could fall back on. Moving back home meant moving back with my parents in Germany. I wasn't ready to leave the UK. So I looked up whether producing was even an option. At the time, I think there were only two courses, Mount View and Central. Mm. The Central application form took too long, so I didn't submit that one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I applied to Mount View and I also applied to do stage management at Lambda. Mm. And I got both offers. Um, So to do creative producing at Mount View and stage management at Lambda. And that was... That was definitely one of those like fork in the road moments Mm. because at the time, if I'm remembering this correctly, you know, one of the big kind of producing names that was really obvious um, as somebody for me to like aspire to potentially be was Sonia Friedman. And she quite famously used to be a stage manager um, before she became a producer. Mm -hmm. And so the part of me that was a little bit scared and a little bit apprehensive was like, okay, maybe I could do the Sonia Friedman route. Or I could just say a prayer and jump straight in. <laughs> and in the end, as much as I would love to say, oh, the course sounded amazing and I knew exactly what I wanted, I was a clueless 20-year-old desperately looking for an excuse to stay in the UK. And that was the most accessible option to me at the time. And why were you so determined to stay in the UK rather than try the German scene, for instance? Um, because for as long as I can remember, Britain has been like calling to me. This sounds so strange, but um, I think actually, especially in the context of what we've been hearing from the British government in relation to the arts, you know, British culture is without a doubt a tool of soft power. Mm. And I was very much as a young kid, I was on the receiving end of that. When I lived in Iran, I remember watching the BBC adaptation of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe on TV Mm -hmm. and being completely fascinated by it. And that had a huge influence on me when I lived in uh, Dubai when it got really, really hot during the kind of summer months. 
and we couldn't really go outside during lunch breaks at school to play, my teacher would put on Doctor Who episodes Mm. and we would sit in the classroom and we'd watch Doctor Who episodes and eat our lunch. Mm. And when I was in Germany, one of the big things, you know, we used to take trips to local theaters, absolutely. But also we would go to the cinema and we would watch NT live screenings on our school trips. And so throughout my entire life, British culture and then towards the later years, British theater had been a very, very profound presence. And by the time, you know, I I was wrapping up my bachelor's at Durham, I was more invested in it than ever before. And I didn't, it didn't really feel like I had a choice in a way, like my entire life had been leading up to making that move in my career. I think for somebody who had a really scattershot upbringing, and I, and I feel completely differently about this now, but at the time, there's something about the formality, the narrative kind of cohesiveness of the way the British approached theater that really appealed to me. You know, they did their Mm. solid, like, three to five act plays, beginning, middle, and end, whereas uh, German theater has always been notoriously deconstructive, Mm -hmm. love to play around with form, love to play around with conventions. Um, There is, you know, there is a deliberate lack of coherence to the way theatre is made in lots of places in continental Europe that you don't see in the UK. And at the time, that structure was incredibly appealing. Right. Less so now, um, but at the time, it was exactly what I thought I needed in my life. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how has your perspective evolved? Because you said tool of soft power, and I, I just wanted to know more about why you chose those words. I think I know, and yeah. I think you put it in a very telling way, I think. Yeah, um, I think, you know, definitely what's really helped has been, for starters, a diversification of like my personal and professional circles. Durham, I'm sure Ben will remember this, is a very homogenous kind of place. Mm-hmm. It's like the joke is that they take Surrey and they just plant it in the Northeast and it's no different. <laughs> that is genuinely what Durham can feel like mm-hmm. sometimes. And so for three years, mm. I was really wrapped up in those conventions of British uh, narrative and storytelling. And also, you know, I was studying English language literature with a massive focus on British storytelling. And so that had completely colored my perspective. And then I moved to London. And then over the years, my circles widened and they changed. Mm. And in the way that I was actually used to growing up, going to international schools, I came into contact with a much bigger diversity of perspectives Mm. on what constitutes good theater and what purpose theater is meant to serve. And so that really kind of has been really instrumental in changing my perception of the way theater is made in this country. Right. But also, I think the older that I have gotten, it's, you know, I finished my undergrad in 2016. I moved down to London and Trump got elected. And all of a sudden, I was out there in the world for the first time as a quote unquote adult. And I had to find my own way through it. And the more that happened in the world and the more that things changed and the more these kinds of norms and standards of decorum, these like unspoken rules of how 
societies, Western societies, enlightened societies behaved and operated, the more they started to fall away, mm. the more I realized that actually that maybe there there are a lot of shortcomings right. yeah. in the way in the way that we do things, in the way our world operates, um, in the way we tell stories. And even though I can't vote in this country, it's been impossible to look at what's been going on here since 2013, you know, the past seven years um, of austerity, um, even though it's been obviously been longer than that for the Brits or anybody who's been living here since um, the Conservative Party came into power. Yeah. It's, re- it's, it's really impossible to not start to recognize this kind of uneasy relationship, this mutually beneficial relationship that exists between the societal systemic infrastructure and the arts in this country. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, mm-hmm. that phrase, you know, a tool of soft power, I have literally seen a very prominent and established UK theatre use that in their internal communications and hold that up as a badge of pride. And I just sat there thinking, what? folks, I don't think you know exactly what this means like that is a dog whistle if i have ever heard one right yeah and obviously now with brexit and the increased kind of economic political isolation that the uk is facing mm. you're absolutely going to see them try to ramp up the cultural output um as a means of diplomacy mm. because they're going to need it they are going to need to make themselves seem more attractive and less insular and culture is a great weapon to do that with and the question that a lot of i think you know a lot of folks in the cultural sector in this country are going to be facing is are we going to take part in that are we going to play the conservative government's soft power diplomacy game or are we going to resist that and i don't know whether the brits Mm. have a very good track record of resisting Mm. that's that's to be seen you mentioned in your interview and conversations in quarantine that your first year in the real world so to say after your ma at mountview was quite hard a bit of a a shock could you tell us more about why it was so hard and why why it even led you to consider changing paths i think to some extent you know i'd i'd grown accustomed to Durham being a bit of a Surrey in the Northeast. I'd kind of accepted that for what it was. I'd accepted that it was quite a homogenous population, um, demographically not diverse at all. But, you know, London is London. London is the big city. London is one of the most metropolitan, most culturally diverse places on earth. And so I think I kind of came in with the expectation that I could be more myself even though looking back now, you know, I'd never had any examples. Um, I'd never consumed any examples of culture that was deliberately internationalist, migrant-led. Mm-hmm. I somehow had this fantasy that I would come to London and it would feel a lot more like my upbringing in Dubai or Germany than it had my undergrad years at Durham. And that first year coincided with quote unquote political awakening in the face of all the things that were changing around the world. And I came down and to my surprise, it seemed like London's theater scene was even more insular and inward looking. Mm. And isolated from the rest of the world than my three years at Durham had been. Wow. And that I just couldn't, I was so incredibly disappointed by that. 
you know, I kept turning up to places expecting my background, my upbringing, the fact that I was multilingual, the fact that I was multicultural, the fact that I had all these, what I thought were really brilliant ways of approaching problem solving and collaboration. Mm -hmm. I thought those would be advantages. I thought those would be things that made me an attractive collaborator. But instead, everyone kind of kept looking at me weird and I would go into job interviews and I just wouldn't really gel with the interviewers. They all had this very specific British sense of humor that I hadn't really picked up. Hmm. And that was really disheartening and it was really disconcerting. And I, more than anything, I found myself as like a perpetual unpaid assistant or associate Hmm. on what looking back, I consider to be highly exploitative Mm. vanity projects, essentially, if we're being completely honest, before lockdown and possibly even after, heaven forbid, like London's always been full of those. Mm -hmm. And if you are a vanity producer, you're always going to need somebody who actually knows what they're doing to help you put it on. And that's what I ended up doing a fair bit of. Mm-hmm. And I was getting really, really fed up with it. So I had uh, I had one foot out the door. I was going to go and do international film sales. I'd done an internship at the European Film Market in Berlin as part of the Berlin Film Festival. And for the first time in many, many years, I was in a room where people were speaking different languages freely and being from a non-British background was an asset. And I was like, that's the life that I want. Mm. I was really incredibly tired of presenting a kind of whitewashed, Americanized, Mm. sanitized version of myself for the sake of being employable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I actually got employed. And I was like, well... (laughs) Well, that that That's kind of nice. that kind of put a put a little damper on the on the fire there. Yeah, yeah. I but- mean, I I can't tell you how much that all resonates. Like, obviously, I I experienced that as an actor rather than a producer. But it's crazy to think it happens in your sphere too, because I could be like, okay, well, I don't sound British, right? So I can't be a British character on stage, even though I'd work really hard on my RP. But to think that it happens yeah. off stage as well is kind of really yeah. crazy. It's really upsetting to hear, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember distinctly going for an interview um, with a touring company right around the time that Theresa May, feels like a lifetime ago, was doing her whole, if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere thing. And I and I, I, I was really upset by that. And I kind of went into the interview all guns a-blazing, ready to like embrace that and ready to talk about how actually that was an asset when it came to touring. And even though I wasn't British, I was, you know, I was really adaptable, et cetera. And I I just saw like the light go out behind the interviewer's eyes. So yeah, it's, if I'm being honest, I probably haven't even experienced the worst of it because at the end of the day, I do still have a cutesy, like American adjacent accent. And Mm -hmm. I just kind of look non-threateningly slightly other. It's like, Mm. oh, she's got an American accent and excellent eyebrows. She's more likely to be one of us than one of them. And so that kind of overt racism and xenophobia that I imagine lots of people in this industry face, you know, Mm -hmm. it didn't even get anywhere close to that. But yeah, it is absolutely 100% pervasive. Yeah. So what kind of job exactly did you wish to do? What kind of work did you wish to do uh, upon graduating? Something 
that involved that internationalism and, and made strength of it? Honestly, you know, thinking back, I don't really know. I remember my time at Mount View being a bit confused, if I'm being honest. One of the great things about doing that at May um, was that you got to meet lots and lots of people producers, artistic directors, creatives from all walks of life, from every segment of the industry would come in and they would talk to us um, and they would offer us opportunities and insights. And the overwhelming feeling that I had back then was, I don't know, something about this doesn't feel right. Hmm. None of what was being kind of presented to me from the British theatrical establishment really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, and at the time, I didn't really have the words for it. And so I graduated and I, well, I thought part of the problem was that I didn't know what I was looking for. And so I wasn't actually finding the opportunities. And now with a bit of hindsight and a few more years of doing this, I've realized that actually what I was looking for didn't exist within the mainstream of British theater. So, of course, I wasn't finding it. Of course, none of the speakers or the lecturers who were coming to talk to us at Mountview were really inspiring me because... None of them were doing what I didn't know at the time I wanted to do. Which was? Um, it's, it's difficult to describe in theatrical terms because if anything, the past kind of six months have made clear to me is that I'm not particularly interested at the moment in producing another show to go on stage. A lot of my most recent freelance independent work has been inspired by my involvement in the environmental movement and environmental activism. And what that's really made clear to me is that we don't really need another piece of fringe theater that is as consumable and disposable as a dress uh, on a hanger at Zara. That's what a lot of our theater is right now, I feel. I feel that really, really strongly. Mm. And so what I'm kind of interested in exploring a lot more going forward, and I've been trying to do more of, is um, theatrical practice that feels like a systemic intervention, that feels like a deliberate uprooting and upending of working practices so far. There's lots of possibilities of looking at that. But I think in the first instance, it'll look a lot more like artists' development, um, early stage R&D, um, developing ideas, concepts, artists. Yeah. You um, said that you decided to stay in London when you got a job. So you were hired to work at Salador. Well, how did that inform you as a professional then? How did that inform your experience and and these uh, changes in your in your mentality. It was it was really brilliant because uh, I I definitely went into Salador having had uh, a not great kind of six to twelve months of attempts at freelancing, looking for the quote unquote right way of producing theater. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, you know, here I go into a, a large, established, growing company, producing quote unquote proper theater, and I'm going to learn how to do things the proper way. And absolutely, I learned so, so much. And it was so incredibly brilliant for my international background uh, to be valued uh, and respected in the way that it was at a company that is deliberately international. But kind of unfortunately for me, my starting to work at Celador coincided with a widespread societal shift in consciousness around the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And so there I was sitting at my brilliant desk job, 
booking all these flights to take all of these actors and crew and cargo all around the world. <laughs> and in the back of my mind, I was thinking, holy shit, the world is getting warmer and warmer and warmer, and we need to stop flying. We need to stop doing this. We need to uh -huh. completely change the way we do things. And yeah, so it was a strange and brilliant time of watching um, and learning from a group of people who are incredibly passionate about what they do and really good at what they do and really see the value in what they do, but who come from a very specific background and mindset where, you know, for most companies anywhere in the world, you see growth as a major factor of success, right? Like that's what you want. You want to keep growing. You want to keep expanding. Uh -huh. And as I was learning more about how to do that, I was also learning that we live on a finite planet with finite resources. And actually we shouldn't be thinking about growing all the time. Yeah. And so there was that real tension and between my professional life and my personal ethics. And I was trying to figure it out. And so towards the end of my time with them, I definitely realized that while I had a lot of respect for what they were doing, as somebody whose family had already made a major contribution to the world's carbon emissions mm -hmm. um, by virtue of what my parents did working with the oil and gas industry, I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. Right. <laughs> yeah. So like you said, you then went and did uh, an independent uh, fringe show duo by Pavan Sadegian. Yes, Pavan Sadegian. Yes. Yeah. So it was really interesting. So, you know, every diaspora will have some kind of thing that they really bond over. And for the Iranian diaspora, that is major geopolitical disagreements between Iran and the West. Lots of us were really worried about our families back home. Pavan put a call out on Twitter just saying like, hey, if there's any Iranian artists based in the UK who just want to have somebody to talk to who gets it, Let's gather. Mm. Let's go go watch a show, grab a coffee, sit there and just talk about our anxiety, which is really difficult to communicate to anybody who doesn't have a family in a similar situation. Yeah. And so that's initially how we met. And she had been working on the show that ended up being dual. And it just so happened that um, she was looking for a producer around the same time that I was looking to kind of gently dip my toe back into the independent freelance world. And yeah, we connected on, we reconnected on Twitter. She came down, we went and grabbed a coffee during a lunch break um, near the Salador offices. Um, hmm. And things just kind of went ahead from there. And well, so it did really well at the uh, Vault Festival and you won uh, show of the week for one of the weeks. Congratulations for that. Thank you. And uh, obviously then the uh, COVID-19 crisis happened. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, that week at the vault that Jewel performed in was one of the very last weeks of blissful ignorance in this country mm -hmm. as, you know, coronavirus was working its way, incidentally, through Iran at the time. And it was just like slowly, slowly working its way ever more westwards. And so we made that show in a bubble, like I said, of blissful ignorance. But also we made that show very deliberately. That show at its heart was about dual heritage, dual identity, 
a mixed cultural upbringing, an inability to feel like you belong anywhere, mm-hmm. and an inability to call for your home. And so around the themes of the show, we really consciously built an international multicultural creative team and in line with my own um, changing personal ethics about sustainable practice and environmental footprints, etc., We'd also decided on a very, I guess you could say, kind of regenerative way of working, a way of working that felt, that tried at least to really put people's needs and people's well-being at the center of the making process. Mm-hmm. And it's and it was very strange because not that there will not have been countless other artists already doing it. And we were also incredibly fortunate to be very well resourced in making that show. But something about that show kind of felt ahead of its time and that a lot of the conversations that have happened since lockdown about the way we make theater and whose voices we listen to and how do we make sure that people are looked after and how do we make sure that the work that we are doing is sustainable it kind of felt like we were already doing that Hmm. so we weren't really in a rush with that show specifically to jump straight in to make it digital, to put it out there for the world to see, to make up for the tour that we had been in the process of booking for this autumn. Hmm. We made a very deliberate choice, um, me, Payvand, and uh, Nastasia Somers, who is um, who's our brilliant director. We made a very deliberate choice to just kind of sit back and take time and appreciate the reprieve and the break that the pandemic had granted us the freedom to not feel like you have to be a part of the constant grind, the kind of the churning of the work wheels, to just see how everything unfolded and check in with each other regularly to see where we thought we might go next. Hmm. And obviously kind of halfway through that, there was a very uh, widespread and visible resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And with kind of everything that happened and every single thing that changed, the show that we made and the show that we put on at Vault felt simultaneously more and less relevant. And so, again, um, whereas, you know, there has been a, a massive, a massive rush to make work digital and make work visible online and to make it present and to remind people that, you know, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. Um We've tried to do the exact opposite and just really take our time and sit with the ramifications of what the past six months mean for this show that we created and where it might go next. And it's only really been over the past couple of weeks that we've started to pick up conversations again about what we might like to do next. And I think it goes the same for me. You know, like I said, my job, my kind of day job with Salador is with a massive international touring company. Mm -hmm. Um, Massive international tours, they're not coming back anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so it's a really brilliant opportunity to sit down with my thoughts and have a think about what it means to be a producer in the world going forward, what it means to be um, an eco-conscious producer, what it means to be a producer who cares about social justice, what it means to be a producer who values internationalism, especially now as it feels like the racism and the xenophobia and the dog whistles and the 
the tide of fascism, it's only becoming more and more present. It feels infinitely more important to me to be really, really deliberate in my internationalism and to go, I am going to be a producer who makes space for migrants, who makes space for climate conscious, anti-capitalist thinking and making. And that, that just takes some time because none of the producing heroes that I was, I was taught to look up to at Mount View before then, that's not really what any of them practice. Yeah. And I'm figuring out how to do that. Right. Well, we've talked a lot about the British industry, its strength and weaknesses. And how do you feel that it can improve so what is, is most urgent for it today, would you say? I think this industry needs to be braver. This industry thinks it's brave. It thinks it's really bold. The British theater industry is just really good at pretending that it's really forward thinking, that it's really innovative, that it is doing really groundbreaking work when in fact all we've really been doing for God knows how long, certainly as long as I've been kind of aware of the British theatre industry. It's just very good at repackaging the same stories, the same way of telling stories, just with slightly more quote-unquote colourful window dressing. We've, we've definitely seen some moves towards greater diversity on stage, for sure. But I think if working on Duel has taught me anything, is that... Visible diversity, on-stage diversity is one thing, but what we really need is a diversity in working practice, is we need a diversity in approaches. And you're only going to get that if you start employing and if you start handing over money, space, resources, decision-making authority over to artists who haven't been at the heart of the establishment up until now. Mm, I agree. Very much so. And yeah, I mean, as much as there is a slow and let's hope steady progress towards more inclusivity, migrants are just not part of the conversation, really, are they? No. They're still very much on the margin. They are very much on the margin. But um, one of the brilliant things that I have kind of observed coming out of lockdown is two kind of advocacy groups, uh, migrants in theater and migrants in culture, um, mm. who have really been pushing and reclaiming what it means to be uh, a migrant and what it means to be a migrant working in this industry. There's this you know, incredible statistic that I can't get out of my head, which is that something like 37% of London's population is foreign born. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So not even, you know, ethnically diverse, foreign born. They were not born in the UK. Mm -hmm. You do not see anywhere close to that kind of diversity. On the stage. On the stage and creative teams and mm -hmm. buildings and production companies anywhere. Mm -hmm. You don't see that kind of diversity anywhere. And what I have found so absolutely brilliant about groups like Migrants in Theatre is that they are really, you know, claiming space and speaking with authority and just showing how incredibly uh, varied the thinking and the making can be if you involve, um, if you involve artists you know, who weren't kind of like forged in the fires of British theatrical tradition. Yeah. Um, and what I also love about them is that they are 
deliberately inclusive mm. and they are deliberately um, intersectional. One thing that I've been really um, conscious of as a, to this country, at least, you know, a German, an EU immigrant, but also somebody from a Middle Eastern background, is that there tend to be kind of two images of migrants that the British media projects that we also have in our minds. It's either, you know, it's the predominantly white European migrants or it is the young Syrian refugee girls. Yeah. It's either one of those. And actually, there is such an incredible breadth and diversity to the migrant experience in the UK. And my hope is that the entirety of that spectrum of diversity is going to be embraced and acknowledged in the way that it hasn't had before. And I'm really, I'm really hopeful the way groups like Migrants in Theatre and Migrants in Culture have been advocating for the visibility and the rights and the talent of migrants in this country is that it's very intersectional. It's very internationalist. Because the decisions about who qualifies as a migrant and mm. who is an acceptable and tolerable migrant aren't being made by the British Theatrical Institution, mm -hmm. because we are actually putting our hands up and saying, this is who we are, this is who we are in our full diversity, that actually we will kind of get to set the bar where we want it, as opposed to the way the British theatre industry likes to do things. We're just going, okay, we're going to make some space for LGBTQ artists first, and then in a little while, yeah. we'll also make some <laughs> space for Black artists. And then maybe in a little while, we'll make some space for neurodivergence. It's like you know, going, no, <laughs> you can make space for all of us at once. And we're going to insist on it. Yeah. And that's what I'm really hopeful of. Yeah. Yeah. And also it's like, I was listening on the radio the other day. It was on the Women's Hour and they were talking about, I think it was a female soccer team or some different sort of sports. And they were saying how, you know, they have to make place for the English player because... <laughs> So many foreigners get hired in these teams because their competence or ability is is higher. And so when it's going to serve them in terms of like being a winning team, then they're going to be very open to foreigners. Yeah. yeah. Or like I went to this French hairdressers that's just open in London a, a couple of years ago. And uh, she was telling me, oh, being French really serves me in the UK because we have a really good reputation in terms of our ability to cut hair. So I like really play up my Frenchness in the UK. Yeah. Um, whereas like the few Brits who are employed in the salon are, are like, I've never felt so discriminated against for being British. And I was like, it is literally the opposite for me and my industry, right? And we are meant <laughs> yeah. to represent the UK. So it's mad. There's just such a discrepancy. It's, it's absolutely mad. There is a discrepancy. It's all incredibly surf-serving. Mm. And I think more than anything, what's really crucial about what happens next and where the industry moves next is to resist the urge to be like a good immigrant, to play into the hands of what good, successful immigrant looks like and to give mm. up who we are and our identities and what it is that makes us special and authentic in order to serve the British theatre establishment or the government's idea of like what constitutes good culture right. is to resist the urge to kind of commodify our, our identities and sell them off in exchange for access and power. Right. It's going to make for so much more interesting and genuinely engaging work if people can go inside a rehearsal room, if they can sit around a programming meeting and they can genuinely be themselves and bring all of themselves without having to worry about like 
making the British artistic director feel comfortable. So speaking of identity and migrant identity, I mean, it's such a vast, vast term that encompasses so much diversity of background and experience. But do you think there is something of a common denominator in terms of migrant identity? And if so, how would you describe it? Oh, my goodness. This is, oh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it depends. I feel like maybe I have more insight to this from being a migrant originally from a colonized part of the world. Mm -hmm. I can't really, like, as much as I, I love to wave around my German passport when it suits me, I can't really speak that much to being a Western migrant at all. But one thing that I have definitely noticed in Eastern kind of global South diasporas and the, the commonality and those migrant experiences, there is a certain sense that being a migrant wasn't really a choice. You know, if you are a migrant, you are more or less by definition, a displaced person. Hmm. And actually, so you know what, maybe this does apply kind of across all migrants, regardless of where they're from, is that there's a displacement and there is a sadness underpinning that displacement. Hmm. One thing that I will never, you know, get out of my head, even if they didn't say it as explicitly to me growing up, was that my parents, they wouldn't have left Iran if they felt like they had a choice. And obviously they did have a choice and did make a choice because most of my family, all of my family stayed. But there is kind of a common common experience and kind of feeling like you have no choice but to migrate, but to leave your home behind. Mm. And whether that comes from a positive place, whether, you know, you have no choice but to go and experience the bright lights of Paris for yourself or whether you have no choice but to leave your home behind because it is not safe, because it is now a conflict zone. Mm. There's mm. something about that kind of displacement and being a migrant that I always, you know, maybe maybe a couple of pints in, I always look for mm -hmm. in somebody that I'm talking to because it is a, it, there's a, there's a sense of solidarity in it that somebody who is native born and raised could never really connect to could never really understand mm -hmm. so yeah even though you know you know it's it's a bit of a sad thing i think for sure and we're, we're just going to see more of it as the climate changes and more places become um, uninhabitable you're going to get more climate migrants right. you're going to get climate refugees right. and so actually i think it's quite important to normalize the existence of that displacement of the fact that no matter how much you try to assimilate and make a new place your home you will always have left something incredibly valuable behind mm. and how do you go about making room for that loss and for that grieving mm. and for all the things you've left behind in your new home because I think that's what's missing a lot at least as I've experienced it the way Britain treats as migrants yeah um, you should be so grateful for the opportunity to mm. have moved here mm. you should be ready to dump all your baggage, leave it all behind, assimilate, learn the language, learn the culture, learn the jokes, eat the food, mm. drink the booze, and ready to really embrace Britishness in all its glory. Yeah, change your accent and everything yeah. else. Change yeah. everything about you. And actually, I think the more migration is going to become commonplace going forward, the more important it is actually to allow space for people in their entirety um, and that includes allowing room for their loss 
and their grief as much as for their joy and excitement. Yeah, mm. yeah, beautifully put. And speaking of the displaced identity, how do you think people that have experienced displacement, including yourself, envision home? It's so strange. I um, I've always quite glibly said, "Oh, like home is where my bed is." <laughs> yes, <laughs> because how else am I going to be able to honor everything that came before me? How else am I going to be able to honor the incredible impact that every single place that I have lived in? Like how on earth am I expected to choose when I'm a first generation migrant three times over at the age of 25? Mm. It seems completely impractical to me uh, to try Mm. and points to any one of the many places um, that I grew up in that raised me and the people that raised me and the communities that raised me and go, that is my home. Everything else was like a nice little extra, was a nice little add-on. It's not. And so I think for me, home is where I choose to be. And so because I've made a choice to be here right now, North London is my home. Mm. Because that also, I think it gives me some agency yeah moving forward of going i can choose to make a new home for myself again mm-hmm. i am shaped by my displacement but i am not defined by it mm-hmm. yeah uh, and so home is where i choose to make it yeah that again that really resonates with me because it, obviously i've never been a refugee or mm-hmm. or um in involuntarily displaced I moved because of my father's job. So in a way, I was following him and it was never my choice. Yeah. And there's a lot of psychological kind of load that comes with moving and never saying goodbye and, and being completely yeah. displaced, right? Oh and my I think goodness. Yeah. I feel that so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And now I've same thing. I'm like you. I've called I've chosen North London and and it's where I feel home even if I don't really sound like most people here and that every time I open my mouth, people are like, oh, where are you from? I don't really mind that so much anymore because I do feel anchored by choice in one place. Yeah, absolutely. And so having been here a while, what would you say is the most British thing about you? (laughs) I feel like the most British thing is the way I sign off my emails. My email sign off is cheers. Nice. (laughs) I don't I don't I could not tell you where that came from <laughs> but for yeah. as long mm-hmm. as I can remember I have signed my emails cheers which incidentally actually is fake british because all the brits sign their emails with their initial and an x and i never do that oh my god so i do that but not the i've done cheers like twice and i felt Mm -hmm. like a complete imposter (laughs) this is so wrong but i like it i like that you've just taken i've embraced that that's my that's my like fake brit thing if i were authentically british i would sign it px but i never do that that is a line i will not cross Um, Um, Oh my God, I do a double X. I do (laughs) N-X-X. Well, you know, you've made it your own. You've made it special. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And again, things we've touched on already, but maybe you want to end on what are your hopes for the future for our society at large, but also when it comes to the migrant question specifically? I think... For society at large, and that also includes, you know, our industry, the industry that we work in, the British theatre industry, Mm -hmm. it would be to prioritize care over growth. 
mm-hmm. to prioritize community care, mental well-being, physical well-being, mm. having all of your fundamental human needs met, to always make a deliberate choice to prioritize people over profits, quite simply. I think mm-hmm. really with the with the kind of challenges that we have ahead of us, that is the only option we have. And the sooner that mindset is acknowledged and accepted and embraced, um, I think we will all be happier for it. We will all be healthier for it. So absolutely, uh, people over profits, care over growth. And with regards to the kind of the big migrant question specifically, I think, to create space for people to bring their whole selves, Mm -hmm. to bring their entire selves and for it to be Again, deliberate, uh, deliberately internationalist would be my real hope. And internationalist within our borders as well. As brilliant and amazing, as valuable as that is to not think that you have to actually physically go to far-flung places for that international perspective, for that international talent, Mm. to really acknowledge and value the abundance, the embarrassment of riches that exists on our doorsteps, on the doorsteps of, in London, certainly, every single theatre in the nation's capital. If you would like to find out more about the initiatives Migrants in Theatre and Migrants in Culture, check out the links in this episode's show notes. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Zachary Fall, Ben Weaver-Hinks, and me, Nadia Cavell. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media, or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.